Welcome to Spectrum. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Welcome to the program this morning. You know, every few months or so, we like to check in with our favorite movie critic to talk not only films, but the amazing programs now on television. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, I am welcoming my good friend, Vegas film critic, Jeff Howard, to the program. Jeff, how are you, sir? Thanks all for right. having me, yeah. First of all, we talked about this a little bit before we started the show, but you've gotten some great guests recently. Not only your channel, but also you're on this new YouTube show that I recommend people go to and catch up. Uh, what's the name of that show, Jeff? Yeah, it's called Movie Mayhem Live, and it's the brainchild of Chuck Thomas, or better known as Chuck the Movie Guy. And he's been a film critic and a colleague and a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, for the last you know 20 years. And he came to me a couple months ago and said, look, I want to do something, you know, that's very 21st century and something that, you know, uh, that's ambitious. I want to do a live, technically a live TV show every week where we bring in critics from around the country and we have a good time. We talk about Netflix. We talk about uh, the current movies and, and also their interviews. They do all the junkets. So, and we have people from Canada and people from Detroit and people from Montreal and LA and Vegas and, and just, you never know who's going to be on it each week. And, uh, he does, he switches it live and, and what's really cool is it's interactive. So if you're watching this movie Mayhem Live on Facebook, you can click on the top where it says contact us and be part of the show. And not just your voice. I mean, video. They'll bring you right in there. So it's really ambitious. It's been going on for a couple of months. It's getting better and better. And it's fun because I'm doing it with my colleagues and friends that I've known for two decades. So, yeah. So it's, I'm glad you like it because it's, it was rough in the beginning. And we just make it like your show. We make fun of all the technical errors because it's fun to tease stuff. It works. <laughs> He works so hard on the show by himself, all the graphics every week and the video. And I mean, it's really ambitious. So when things go wrong, you know, it's live TV. I wanted to talk to you first about this. We were just talking about this documentary, Free Solo, I think is the name of it. And it's very exciting because the climber in this film actually lives here in Las Vegas, right? Yeah, Alex Hunted, and he moved here in 2017. And it's in the documentary. It's about him moving to Las Vegas. And I was watching the movie. I was like, I sat up, you know, because not only was I scheduled to interview him and the directors, I was like, wow, he's he's a vegan. And uh, his story is so amazing. And not only that, he's just really a humble guy. And when you watch the documentary, it just doesn't show him uh, his passion for, for climbing mountains, you know, especially free-handed or free solo or uh, going around the world. But he... He lives almost like this hippie bohemian lifestyle. He lives in his camper. Uh, he's got a family of means, but he chooses to live so simply and, and, and concentrate on his rock climbing for 24 seven, you know, 364 days a year, uh, to the point where it sacrificed, you know, relationships and, and he just forgo every that because he has this passion for climbing. And then he's finally going to climb El Capitan in the Yosemite National Park, but he's doing it free solo, no ropes, where, you know, he's going up. Uh. <laughs> I know. I told myself, well, this this isn't going to be exciting. How you know he's climbing a mountain with a rock, right? Well, he's climbing this thing where one mistake and he's dead. I mean, it's that. And he, and I even remember other mountain climbers in the news over the last couple of years that have been climbing for decades. He knew really well that had plummeted to their death. So they mentioned that. So it's it's a real risk going on, and and also capturing it on film. I mean, it's, there's no documentary if you're not capturing the moment instead of someone just telling you about it. So he's got camera crews all around him following up all these practice climbs with ropes and other mountains and then he gets a girlfriend and all the climbers are going, you're going to be distracted. And he was, you know, and you fall in love and, uh, you know, she's on your mind instead of just, you'd you be up there climbing this thing and if you just, if your mind's not concentrated on what you're doing, you know, it's, it's a deadly mistake. But an unbelievable documentary, yeah, and a great interview with him too. Uh, by the way, has that been released yet? 
It just came out in Las Vegas uh, last week, so it's playing here locally. Uh, it's been nationwide too. It's it's a documentary, so you just have to check your local listings, you know, no matter where where you're at. But National Geographic's been really good in releasing this nationwide. Vegas film critic Jeff Howard joins me. Jeff, I think, you know, people sometimes think after a summer blockbuster season that nothing good this way shall come again until the Christmas holidays. But sometimes, it's, sometimes. That's, that's kind of how it used to be, right? I mean, there, there's some good stuff out right now. It's changed so much. With it's, it's, it, What drives the industry now is content. There is so much content from now Amazon and Netflix and Hulu and, and you name it. Everybody's producing content, movies, television shows. There is no down season anymore. Usually there is parts of the season where they're going to release the real garbage. You know, that still hasn't changed, you know, like in early January or, or in September. Uh, but overall, no, there's just constantly stuff coming out. But they save their big guns for the fall for award seasons for a purpose. So, Jeff, since we just passed Halloween, let's talk about the new Halloween. It features original star Jamie Lee Curtis. I never thought that she would return, what is it, 40 years later. Can you, oh, my gosh. Talk about feeling old. I was 12 years old when that movie came out originally in 1978. And I remember, if you're from Las Vegas area growing up here, the Red Rock Theater, I stood in front of that poster because it's iconic, too. You know, with the knife, the knife who came home and... Everyone at yeah. junior high, at Hyde Park Junior High, was talking about this movie. If you did not see Halloween, you were nobody. And that was a point in my life where nobody <laughs> would take me. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, usually I have a cool brother and sister, but sometimes they had to be my big brother and sister saying, you're not seeing that movie, you know. And uh, and also just friends would see it, but I couldn't get anyone to get me to see that movie. So I had to see it a year later on HBO when it finally came out, you know, back when you had the uh, antenna on the roof. Right. Uh, but it still had the same impact. It was still just absolutely insane. And, and I did a couple junkets of the of the films that came after that with Jamie Lee Curtis, the HTO and uh, Resurrection and all that. And uh, But she, she confesses now those were strictly for money, and it sure seemed like it. But this one is different because not only do you have John Carpenter's blessing and a new take on the Halloween theme that he created with his kids doing a musical score, but you, you totally ignore any of those sequels that happened after the original Halloween. Okay. And, yeah. And because this picks up forty years later, it, it still keeps in the in the in the canon of the Halloween Michael Myers from the first film, so it really connects it. And it's terrifying. It absolutely is. The original filming had five people who got killed. This one, I counted seventeen. And oh. I know Michael didn't waste any time. And what's really unique about this is a lot of the most horrific murders in Halloween. You don't see very Hitchcock. Remember in, in Psycho when the sure, knife was going? Yeah. And people say, oh, my God, that's the worst thing I ever saw. The knife was and You never saw the knife in her body, and they didn't. Same thing with this. You'd see something happen off camera where your imagination would just try to figure out what Michael was doing to, to some lady making a sandwich in a kitchen. You know, and you see the table rocking back and forth, and you hear the hammer hitting, you know, hitting something. And it's like you're just sitting there. And, those were just more graphic than the knife in the chest like we're always used to or something like that. So David Gordon Green, the director, really turned in something special with the blessing of uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and with John Carpenter and great old Danny McBride, one of my all-time favorite comedians, executive producer and co-writer of this film. Wow. So it really, yeah, it really captured what the original was all about. And uh, it, it really did. And it was also girl power because you have Jamie Lee Curtis, her daughter, and... and um, and her mother, they're all, I mean, they're, where was it? No, wait, her, her, her daughter and then her granddaughter. So you have this whole, you know, trio of, of powerful women challenging Michael Myers coming home, and they've been waiting for him. So I was really surprised how great it was. And tell you, Jim, this was definitely an audience movie. You could feel the energy in this movie. You could feel a pin drop, especially the third act, when all, everything was coming to head. 
it was just, it was one of the best movie going experiences as a horror fan and someone who lived through the eighties and all of that. And it was a great way to say thank you. And, and just like the last Jedi with Mark Hamill, it was a great way for the original guys like me who grew up with star Wars to say goodbye to those classic characters and Yoda and all that. This I felt too, like I was right back in high school because when Halloween two came out, you know, back in 1980, I remember seeing that when I was 15 with a bunch of friends at the Red Rock theater. So this movie really is great for nostalgic people like me, but then also it just just huge bolts in the arm for uh, for the horror genre. So uh, let's see where it goes because the thing made a hundred million dollars more. It set records, you know, female lead over fifty five. Uh, it set all kinds of box office records, and it took Hollywood by surprise. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, I think it's the biggest opening of Jamie Lee Curtis's career. Absolutely, yeah, and she's she's phenomenal in it. She is. Everybody is great in it, and it's just. It's just got some really classic, suspenseful scenes in it that, you know, no spoiler alert, but I don't want to give them away. But I was really, you know, I, I would think you sit down and go, okay, how's Michael going to kill this guy? <laughs> how's Michael going to do this? How's Michael going to do that? And boy, they came up with some really great direction with the camera and suspense. Really good. Really good. With Danny McBride involved, there must have been some funny moments too, huh? There was a few funny moments, but overall, you were kind of like uh, watching to see the kind of homage to the original, you know. So there's some camera shots and some references, and and uh, but I, I, you know, Danny McBride, I thought he was going to be in it, but he wasn't. And uh, it's not as funny as you think. The moments, yeah. are, are kind of, the laughs come out of something that a horrific scene. And I would turn to my friend and go, "What are they laughing at?" I just the audience was laughing out of nervous. Sure. They didn't know what to do, yeah. you know? So Yeah. So it's pretty incredible to me always that, you know, maybe the scariest film before the original Halloween was done by Jamie Lee's mom, Janet Lee, Psycho. Absolutely. And I had the pleasure of seeing Psycho live at the Smith Center for the Performing Arts here. They they actually played the movie with a live Las Vegas Philharmonic Orchestra. Right. And, uh, and right there, so we had thousands of people watching this movie on the big screen and hearing the, the classic Bernard Herrmann score with the violin screeching, and I got to bring some friends who had never seen the movie before, and it still holds up. It really does. And, you know, it was a, not only was Psycho a classic, you know, in terms of the being horrific and the music, but it killed its main character off 40 minutes into the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so right. it's never been done before, right? Like, can you imagine watching a movie today and the main character's dead? And then you're like, whoa, where do we go from here? Uh, you know what? I think I think the only other time I saw that happen, and I know you like this movie just like I do, is the Cowboys when they killed off John Wayne. They did, but that that was at the end of the film, though. But that, that's still, that, that's one of my trivia questions. You know, name the three films John Wayne died in. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it was Sands of Iwo Jima, uh, The Cowboys, and, of course, his last movie, The Shooters. He was playing out his real death scene. He was dead soon after that movie. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's, so Hitchcock was, uh, was a classic in doing that, too. And, and Jamie Lee Curtis, I know, there's such a great legacy with the Curtis family, you know? Yeah. It was really cool. A movie that I've been looking forward to for a long time is Bohemian Rhapsody. Being the classic rock person that I am, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the original choice to play Freddie Mercury was Sasha Baron Cohen, right? Which would have been a nightmare, because I think he, he's too tall, and he, he didn't look anything like Freddie Mercury. And if you saw him in Les Mis, he actually ruined the, the song Master of the House, because you know, for Les Mis, the director decided to shoot all the songs live to film, so they didn't record them. So he basically can't sing, and Sasha was just walking around speaking the words, you know, Master of the House. And it just ruined it. You know, I had so many problems with that movie. So I'm glad they didn't do that because, you know, you, you figure some actors were born to play a, a role that's going to carry them through the, you know, the rest of their career, and Rami Malek really did that with Freddie Mercury. In fact, 
every cast member that played the members of Queen looked spot on and sounded just like them. And I grew up with Queen again. I'm, yep. I'm, try, I'm trying to figure this out that Queen was the first rock band outside of like Disney music and nursery rhymes when I was a little kid. I mean, it was the first other than the Beatles. I always quit Queen and the Beatles were the two that kind of like got my attention because, uh, and I, I've been listening to them my whole life. We, we heard their first 45. It was Bohemian Rhapsody and I think it was Killer Queen or, or You're My Best Friend. Um, it was at Pizza Hut back when they had the restaurants and had the two boxes. <laughs> uh, 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 <laughs> so we would we would leave, you know, fourth grade. It was in fourth grade. We'd go down on Boulder Highway here in Las Vegas, and we'd go into the Pizza Hut. We had to play that song, and it was it was Bohemian Rhapsody. And you know, we didn't understand the context of it. We just understood as you know, eleven year olds hearing Bashmilla, Will You Let Me Go. We just died laughing at that. We just thought that was so funny, and we never heard anything like it. So. It was important this movie's been, you know, for 10 years being brought to the big screen, you know, to one of the world's most popular bands. And it is a technical achievement, and it's not without its controversy either with the director, Brian Singer, who's had all these uh, sexual misconduct um, accusations made against him. So the studio just really got rid of him fast. He didn't show up the last two weeks of the movie, had to bring in the cinematographer to finish the film. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's a pretty – I saw the movie, and it was pretty amazing – in terms of the music and the performances, maybe a little like some of the facts weren't right, because I'm like, that's not how that happened. So the embellished and dramatic license. But Rami Malek, oh, my God, I'm telling you, that's Freddie Mercury. I mean, it's, it's uncanny, his actions and his voice. And then the final scene of the movie is, is worth the price of admission to see them at Wembley Stadium for Live Aid. It's just they recreated I, the whole thing. Freddie Mercury, you know, in his prime, he really owned the stage and really connected to the audience. And I know Remy Malik wanted to capture that. And it sounds like he does from what you're saying. He did. And he had help from uh, Freddie Mercury's sister. You know, she's like, uh, there was all kinds of uh, trouble on the set. I heard from the director and, and Remy and he wanted to do multiple takes of things. And Brian Singer is known for his X-Men movie. So he moves very fast. And there's a famous quote from his uh, Freddie Mercury's sister telling Malik, hey, look, Freddie was a perfectionist, too, so you take as many takes as you need. And uh, it's also about how some of the greatest songs came to be. You know, We Will Rock You, and, and another one, Bites the Dust, and Bohemian Rhapsody, and Mike Myers makes a cameo as the EMI record executive, you know, saying, what is this record you brought me? No one's going to listen to a six-minute movie about opera, I mean, six-minute music <laughs> about, about opera and Right. And he even makes a crack in there about uh, Wayne's World. Like, I want a song where kids are going to be driving in the car and banging their heads up and down. So that was pretty funny. Does Remy Malik sing, or is it strictly, you know, Queen on the soundtrack? You know, I don't know that. That's the thing that was going through. I don't think that was him singing, because no one can, you know, copy Freddie Mercury. I really yeah. think they used takes or, you know, his actual voice. It sure sounded like it. I haven't researched that yet. Especially the last, the last sequence with the with the stadium. It sounds like they just took the audio from that and just put it right over him. Vegas film critic Jeff Howard is with me, and we're talking about some of the films that are out now or about to be released. So A Star is Born is this huge hit now. How many times, though, has this film been remade now? This is the fourth one. There was a, an original one in the 30s with Friedrich March, the second one with James James Mason. Can I do that impression? Uh-huh. I never get to. <laughs> yes, so James Mason uh-huh. and Judy Garland did the one in the 1950s. And then uh, the 1970s one with uh, Chris Christopherson and uh, Barbara Streisand. Right. And now, I'm telling you, I, I, I've seen this trailer so many times, and I was really eager to see this movie, and the buzz out of the Toronto Film Festival, Star is Born, was just off the hook. And Lady Gaga, who I absolutely you know idolize, you know, she was so good in American Horror Story Hotel, so she had the yeah. acting chops. And there were so many great stories of not only the movie itself, how great the film is, but the making of it about the auditions and about 
you know, the studio wasn't like Lady Gaga. Are you kidding me? You know what? She can't act. And they did all these screen tests. And, and Bradley learned Bradley Cooper learned the guitar for a whole year, year and a half with Willie Nelson's son, and brought in incredible uh, consultants for the music. And Lady Gaga wrote like 17 new songs. Wow. And, so he, and then also Bradley Cooper directed it. So he's, he's, he's all. So much was riding on this movie. And then when you see it, Jim, oh, it's pure heaven. It really is. Not only is the music, but if you know the film, the tragedy, you know, the love story inside of it, shooting at Coachella, shooting at some of these incredible music festivals where they just bring Lady Gaga out and, and you know, the crowd goes crazy and chanting her name that the, she goes by in the movie. And it's just a magical film. It really is. And the soundtrack is just fantastic. And a pretty interesting cast other than those two. I mean, Andrew Dice Clay, who is a pretty good actor, isn't he? He keeps popping up in these things. Absolutely. Yeah. And he, he plays Lady Gaga's father, and he drives a limo, you know, and he's got all his friends, and he's his, his character is her biggest supporter. So he's not being the filthy mouth kind of, you know, punk. He's yeah. being this father who's protecting his daughter and, and admiring, you know, she could sing. He always called called her the the greatest singer, and here she is working in a drag queen bar, you know, serving drinks, and she gets to sing once in a while, and here's one of the world's greatest country singers walks in and hears her, and the rest is history. And also Sam Elliott playing Bradley Cooper's older brother, you know, is trying to manage him, saying, look, cut down on the drinking and drugs, you know, you're you got it. He's trying to, you know, be a father that he that they never had or paid attention to him. And Sam Elliott's phenomenal in it too. So it's just an amazing. It's one of my favorite films of the year. It really is. And Dave Chappelle is in it too, isn't he? He is barely, but he places. You know, when these guys get to be the superstar status, they have to go back to people they yeah. can trust, and that's one of his childhood friends. And he's like, hey, you know, he came home to to kind of get his thoughts back together, and Chappelle delivers the most dramatic scene I've ever seen. You know, here's this comedian that can make you laugh, and then they turn around, and, and, and he just does a real heartfelt uh, scene in the movie. But yeah, it's, it's phenomenal casting. Also looking forward to seeing The First Man. I love all the space stuff, uh, the Apollo stuff. Me too, and yeah. I was Ryan, a big NASA fan. Yeah, Ryan Gosling, as good as I hoped? Well, you know, Damien Chazelle, who did um, Whiplash, which got all the attention for, right. for the Academy that year, and then he did La La Land, which, you know, I'm not a fan of. I thought it was the worst film of that year. Yeah. So, yeah, I know. I got a lot of hell for that. Uh, uh, uh. And so now I was eager to see what he was going to do with, with Neil Armstrong's life and the trip to the moon and all of that around there. And in my opinion, he, he really didn't, he made it more of an art film instead of an action adventure. And I know we're supposed to delve into the life, the personal life of Neil Armstrong, you know, with his personality and the trouble he had with his wife and his, his connecting with his kids because yeah. he was essentially an engineer who was, who was just 24-7 working on his career and, of course, the ultimate moonshot. Uh, but overall, I just thought Ryan Gosling was just the most boring, you know, two-dimensional character in that film. And I don't know if that really reflected Neil Armstrong's real personality, but hey, we're watching a movie, right? It was no Apollo 13. It was not, uh, I needed something exciting. It just, I came away so uninspired from that movie. You know, I should have came out going USA, and I didn't. I was very bored with that film. And also the controversy about him not planting the flag on the moon, you know, how anti-American it was. And I'm telling you, Jim, after watching this film, it is 100,000% patriotic. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the whole movie is about beating the Russians and American ingenuity. And I mean, it's, it's patriotic. His kids raises a flag in front of their house. And you do see the flag on the moon multiple times, but you just don't see the scene where he plants it. So any of those rumors how this is an anti, you know, the conservative movement out there, talk radio saying how don't see this film and boycott it. No, don't do that at all because it is very patriotic. The, uh, 
TV series, The First. Have you seen that with Sean Penn? Yes, I've seen the first episode, and uh, I do have an interview with the star of that film, too. And uh, I recently had a crash on my heart when I lost it. Uh, but, that, that, yes, I did see that. And there's, there's a whole, you know, science is under attack here. So that's what I love about these films, because it shows when America really took chances and they were innovative. And you hear, um, what's his name, Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about how we need to get, you know, excited about the space race again and about, you know, President Trump wants the Space Force. And, you know, so there's all this interest in going to Mars and all this. And these are the movies that will inspire the next generation. You know, these are the TV shows, you know. I think we're just kind of jaded now with Star Wars, you know, that people just don't think about, you know, space travel and, and NASA as they should, all of them maybe Star Trek. So but I, it's really exciting to see because when I was a kid, I loved, you know, all the Apollo missions and all the things that went on because those guys were such heroes. But then, you know, you don't hear about that stuff anymore. You know, they, they hitch rides with the Russians now, <laughs> you know, and things. It's just, you know, thank God for uh, Elon Musk, you know, keeping, keeping the dream alive. Well, I tell you, I watched the whole thing. I did watch the whole series, and it got better. It kind of started off slowly the first couple of episodes, I thought. It was pretty interesting, and I know that people, you know, with Sean Penn, you take him in small doses, so there was no way that I could binge watch that, but right. uh, it ended up being really good. It was on Hulu, uh, and I know that a lot of people don't necessarily get that. Yeah, Hulu, Amazon, Netflix, I mean, it's that's the future right there. I mean, you're not going to have cable channels anymore. In fact, you know, once Disney launches their uh, their streaming service next year, and it's, everything's just going to be on demand. You know, so yeah. there's only three or four companies own everything anyway, and so much good content out there. I can't tell you. I need another. I tell people I need another lifetime to watch everything because it's it, television's where it's at. I mean, these TV series are just amazing that are out right now. And I and if I have another person to come up to me and say, "Hey, you got to watch this series," and I'm like, "I know, I know," and just see my my watch list on Netflix is longer than my arm. That ends part one of our discussion with Vegas film critic Jeff Howard. Next time, we'll talk about Robert Redford's final film, Jane Fonda's career, and movies premiering this month. Thank you so much for tuning in this morning. You can now find replays of Spectrum episodes on our station website. I do hope to see you back here next Sunday morning at 7.30. Spectrum is hosted, written, and produced by Jim Tofty. If you have suggestions on future guests or topics, Please send them to spectrum at smiradio.com.